think I think the hardest thing in introducing a new technology is change. Um, people don't like change. They don't want to do things differently. They would far prefer to continue doing something that annoys the absolute crap out of them rather than stop and learn something new which could change their life. Um, and that's you've just got to accept that because that is the way it is. Uh, one of my favorite entrepreneurs is Thomas Edison because um, people think that he, he um, invented the electric light bulb, but he didn't. He was the first to commercialize it. And the way that he did it was to deliver electricity to people for the first time in the same way that they were already receiving gas. So rather than trying to change people's behavior and tell them, hey, we've got this amazing new technology, you should go and change everything that you're already doing in order to adopt it. He knew that that wouldn't work. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. I'm Adriana Bellotti and today's guest is Leah Kellombadla. Leah is the co-founder of Intimate.io a payment platform for the adult industry. She's on a mission to provide a service to those being left out of the current system due to last century's rules and regulations. Here's our chat. Hi, Leah. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. We appreciate it. Let's dive right into it. Yeah. So tell us about growing up, what inspired you to choose your career and um, yeah, so growing up, um, I was just really a massive nerd at school, um, a bit of an all-rounder, like I liked, I just liked all of my subjects and I did all of the extracurricular stuff, like I was on the debating team and I was a library monitor and very musical, I played lots of different instruments and sang in the choir That's and, do you think so? Oh God, no, I was just a massive nerd, I, I was not cool at school whatsoever I was too busy studying and like debating and stuff um but actually my dream was to be a dentist yeah well actually more specifically I want to be an orthodontist um because I have a condition it's called ectodermal dysplasia and I'm missing teeth and I had this awful smile for my whole life um which was very gappy and toothy and I couldn't find anyone who was going to um actually treat me Anyway, long story short, we found this incredible orthodontist who diagnosed me with this condition. Um, I had years and years of full-on orthodontic work, which included wearing a thing on my face, like a roller cage. It was actually called a roller cage oh my to drag all my teeth forward. Um, and yeah, it was pretty full-on, but uh, he changed my life. And being able to smile today, because I mean, my job today involves a lot of speaking and being on panels and meeting with people every day. Um, and I have the confidence to be able to smile to people. So he really changed my life and I wanted to be like him. Um, when I looked into doing the GAMSAT, which is the um, entry exam that's required to get into orthodontics, I just learned that it was such a full-on course. It was like nine to five, Monday to Friday, class time every day. And I was never going to be able to do the study that was required and still support myself because, you know, I don't come from a rich family, so my family wasn't able to put me through that study. So, um, yeah, I think at the time I was really upset I didn't really get to follow my dream and I ended up in sales. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what, did you, what degree did you end up doing business? 
No, so my well, my undergrad was um, in writing and communications, and I always loved writing, but I quickly ruled that one out because I was like, oh, writers make no money. Um, <laughs> but it was always my passion, so I loved my undergrad. But I kind of came out at the end of that degree and went, oh god, you know, I've done some stupid throwaway degree, and um, you know, I've wasted years of my life. But I was in sales at the time, and I was doing really well. I used to think back on it, thinking, oh, when am I going to get a real job? But really, it gave me the foundation um, that helped me get into my own path of entrepreneurship because um, I think sales is such a fundamental skill for anyone, no matter what uh, role you play in an organisation. Um, but yeah, it was funny. It was kind of I, my career had a lot of different twists and turns. Being in sales, I worked in all sorts of different industries. I started out in renewable energy, then I worked for a chemical manufacturing company. I was in um, advertising and media, publishing, um, human resources, women in leadership, all this stuff. And at the time, I kind of thought, what am I doing? I've got to get some focus in my life. But really, it's amazing how every little step along the way teaches you something different. And then sometimes I think you get that cross-disciplinary innovation from having such a breadth of experience. That's very interesting. <laughs> Amongst all of that, how did you discover blockchain? Well, it was renewable energy, actually. So... Um, I was sitting with a great friend of mine, PK Rassam, uh, if anyone knows him, he's in Melbourne actually, and um, he's... Do you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's his fault. Um, we were sitting there chatting and I was ranting about why I left the, re the renewable energy industry and I said, you know, it's, I definitely believe in sustainability, it's the way of the future, but the way that the system works right now... There's no way that, um, you know, your mums and dads who have got a solar system on their roof, they're not properly financially incentivized to actually um, pick up the shortfall with a lot of the, um, the problems with uh, energy, uh, meeting energy peak demand, which we were, at the time um, everyone was kind of talking about, it was before Elon Musk got involved with um, the power issue in South Australia and da-da-da-da-da. But anyway, I'm ranting about it and going, you know, until we decentralize the powers that be and put the power back in the hands of the people you know we're never going to see change and and he's just kind of sitting there with his with his smirk on his face and he's like I'm going to send you something um just tell me what you think and he sent me this case study for the Brooklyn microgrid which was the consensus project between Transgrid and LO3 Energy and it was the first time that energy peer-to-peer -peer trading had been proven on the blockchain and I still remember it took me weeks to get my head around it because I just, it, it wasn't that I didn't believe that the technology was doing this, but it was just such a fundamental shift in the way that our economy works and who could actually have control over these systems and legitimately contribute um, and share in the benefits that are produced in these systems. So, um, yeah, when I... When I finally kind of got my head around it, I guess that was my moment down the rabbit hole, and I thought, I've just got to be a part of this movement. This is going to change the world. And it was at that point that I got really obsessed with this idea, though, that blockchain was such an early stage technology that it was kind of crying out for a use case. And that was really at the start of the ICO craze, and I just saw people applying blockchain to anything and everything some great use cases, some absolutely stupid use cases, um, but still people were jumping on the bandwagon because they thought there was a lot of money to be made. Um, 
And that was when uh, I started, well, firstly, I kind of took this tangent that I was really interested in um, blockchain for developing economies, everything from um, microfinance and micropayments and microinsurance to identity issues, um, and also things like um, cutting out the middleman with charity supply chain donations, things like that. So lots of interesting use cases, and it was a good friend of mine, Dr. Jane Thomason, you know her? Yeah. She, she was sort of getting me into all of that. But there was also a lot of moving parts of these systems and just such a long way to realisation. And I thought, we just need something that's right here, right now, with relatively simple problems to solve, just to prove that this technology is needed. Um, and then a few months later, I met my future co-founder, Ruben Copper, who'd been working in both the Bitcoin and, and adult industries for many years. Um, he was involved with a company that introduced the first Bitcoin ATMs to Australia in 2014. And um, later he had founded an app called Rendezvous, which was um, kind of like an on-demand matching app, um, putting escorts in touch with clients. And he'd seen that both industries had issues with stigma, with payments. Um, and he kind of thought, wow, you know, it's so interesting because crypto can solve adults' problems, but adult could also solve crypto's problems in showing that there was a use case right now where people were desperate for um, a means of payment that was secure and reliable and trustworthy that wasn't um, underpinned by the banks that were actually um, excluding everyone from a moral stigma. Uh, yeah, basically what was happening there was a lot of moral exclusion happening. So despite the fact that um, the, the industry at least in New South Wales, was completely decriminalised, um, that people within this industry were not able to access um, safe and reliable payment services or even banking uh, relationships. So, um, yeah, then we, we started um, throwing around these ideas to start the company and the rest is history. So. <laughs> and how did you go about creating your company? Did you want to say hello? How was that journey? Yeah, so we completed a token sale in June 2017. Um, we had a very strong uh, uh, seed and pre-sale um, and a very flat public sale, which was kind of in line with our expectations around market conditions by June 2000. Sorry, June 2018 is when we finished. Um, around that time, everything had sort of been flattening out. So, um, at the, I mean, the journey was amazing. Um, we started uh, in October 2017, so as you can imagine, everything was absolutely insane back then. And, you know, you had some other ICOs like Tezos and Bancor, like, doing absolutely incredible um, fundraisers. So it was all a bit crazy. Um, as I kind of touched on before, it was also kind of frustrating because you could see people just throwing money at absolutely ridiculous things, whether it was a, a shitty project that really didn't need to exist and wasn't solving real problems, or also a lot of the hype around, um, I guess, incentivizing people to do the wrong thing, whether it was people um, lying about team members that, that were or weren't on the project oh, or, you so know, much so much. And naming advisors that didn't actually have a relationship with the project at all. Um, pumping up telegram groups and like like the numbers in telegram groups and just buying followers or at least like paying people to to, to participate in discussion um, 
And it was so frustrating because, like, if there were really smart people out there who would look at our group and go, oh, you don't even have at least 10,000 followers. We're not even going to consider your project. And I think, mate, I could go out and get 10,000 followers tomorrow, but they're not going to be real. Um, and it was just so frustrating because you could see other projects just following what the hype wanted and, you know, and being rewarded handsomely for it. So... Yeah, exactly. Um, most of them are dead and dying by the wayside, and we've seen a huge consolidation in the bear market, which we all knew was coming, but um, it was really hard to kind of ride through it at the time. And, like, it was hard to stick by our values, which we always did, um, but a lot of people were pushing us to do unethical stuff, which we um, never, ever would actually bow and do so that was hard though at the time because we're going oh you know maybe we should just be following the trends but we're glad we didn't um and also just seeing that that's exactly what the market wanted at the time but yeah now um we've seen a lot of them just disappear and uh we've also seen regulators crack down on that which i think is kind of unfortunate i wish that the, the industry could just regulate itself and do the right thing but Hey, it's, it'll be interesting to see where we go this year with those sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, regulators need to regulate. They say it's it's for the public's protection. I sometimes I think it's for election protection. Yeah. More than anything, but you know, protection is food in a way, I guess. We'll see how it goes. As long as the innovation doesn't stop, it's good to protect people. That's right. Yeah, there's a fine line and a tricky balance there. I think. Um, but if we regulate it to the point that people can't push the boundaries and create new things and challenge those existing structures, um, yeah, well, it's kind of what are we in it for then? Well, and you chose to develop a pro product for the adult industry, right? Mm. So a lot of regulation and red tape involved in that also. Well, yeah, I mean, the adult industry is on a spectrum and we um, have a really broad definition of what adult is. Um, so we've got um, more than 45 international partners now or merchants who will install our API to start accepting multiple cryptocurrencies as payment. Um, so we've got everything from um, escort agencies or adult content distributors through to a Japanese love hotel group. And um, we've got adult media and news. We've got games. So, like, um, there's one company uh, called Gaming Adult. They have a product called Hentai Heroes. And they've got something like 25 million registered users. It's, yeah, they're huge. Um, but also things like uh, sexual health and wellness, um, also sexual educators and therapists. So, oh, and dating as well, adult dating. So, anything from, say, uh, we're not actually partnered with Tinder or Grindr, but dating apps are similar to that. Um, they are, but they do um, offer subscriptions. And the other thing is that um, beyond our payments, we're building a decentralized trust system, which will be very, very applicable to any kind of in-person interaction. Um, people always kind of assume that it's only applicable to, say, um, an interaction with an escort, but if you think about the way that um, everybody uses dating apps these days and for hookups, you don't really have any kind of trust system to be able to assess the person that we're meeting up with. Um, so that's that's a future thing. I've gone down a tangent here. Oh, okay. <laughs>
does that mean that you'll be able to tell if a person's photo is real or not? Yeah. That's something that happens quite often. Yep. I mean, I have not used a dating app since 2013. You've got a Thankfully. very good memory. Yeah. <laughs> That's when my boyfriend and I started dating. Oh, and you met on a dating app? No, no. Oh. We, we met on the app. Oh, okay. Cool. Something else. But that's interesting in itself. Like, people are using all sorts of things for meeting up today. I've had Instagram is, like, it's, it's a hot spot for people being able to find a cool date. Really? Yeah. And there's some really interesting ones. Um, there's one, I believe the handle is underscore personals underscore. And it's this group. Um, it's specifically for the LGBTIQ community, but focused mainly on women. And they've rejected the whole idea of dating apps being focused on physical appearance. So now they post on this Instagram page these amazing personal ads, but they're all really quirky and kinky and funny and smart. Um, yeah, you've got to look up. It's awesome. Yeah, so the handle is at underscore personals underscore, I think. Okay. I think. Um, but they're a really fascinating one because looking at how this space is evolving, there are some niche groups that are rejecting the way that the adult dating scene is, um, is evolving and they want something new that actually represents them more. Um, so they're a community that have said, well, appearance is not uh, what's most important to me. Where I get real chemistry is where it's a meeting of the minds or um, you know, sharing something a little bit more than just a picture of your face. But yeah, I mean, back to it um, in terms of how people might be meeting. People don't really, I mean, in our society, I don't think there's really that much of a stigma between two people meeting on a dating app and meeting up for a one-night stand. But there certainly is if there is a paid element to it. The interesting thing is that people who use dating apps, I think, could learn a lot from the escort industry in how to actually have safe sex and protect themselves in those types of situations. I mean, obviously, um, the escort industry has got this down to a fine art with very little technology or um, trustworthy resources to be able to help them. Um, but people who are using dating apps, you know, they put a lot of trust in a complete stranger, and um, that's in everything from... Is it safe to meet with this person, whether it's in a public place or at their house? Am I going to use um, uh, condoms, for example? Am I going to practice safe sex? And if not, can I trust that this person isn't going to infect me with something? I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes on there, but I find that people who are using dating apps aren't necessarily having those tough conversations. So, For precautions. Exactly. Like just text a friend and say, I'm going to see yeah. this person, use his phone number and his address or hers, and if you don't hear from me by tomorrow, call the police. Yeah, exactly. Simple um, measures. And it's important because um, I think our, our whole world is moving more and more and more to um, these peer-to-peer -peer interactions, and we've seen how reputation systems can allow us to trust others very efficiently. So... You know, it wasn't that long ago that someone said, oh, I'm going to go and get a ride home with a stranger or I'm going to go halfway around the world and stay in a stranger's house. You'd be like, are you crazy? But these days with Uber and Airbnb and other sharing apps, it's completely commonplace. So I think reputation systems have done a lot to be able to make us feel confident that we can partake in activities like that. But they're not perfect systems. 
Um, and we certainly haven't seen them applied to things like the dating scene. So um, I think it's very interesting if we can actually start to have a look at how uh, blockchain as a trust technology could potentially make some of those industries a lot safer. Have you used uh, Bitcoin or crypto to pay for things? Yes. Um, so I, I get a bit frustrated because um, I don't think I can pay for enough things with crypto. Um, and particularly because we're quite international, so we're traveling a lot and my Australian credit cards aren't always accepted. Um, they often get declined, which is really annoying. Um, but crypto is a lot easier to use. It's just not always accepted. One thing I've found recently is um, coins.ph. So I'm based in the Philippines. And this is an app where I can set up a wallet with minimal KYC up into um, a certain benchmark of how much you spend or you know how much money you hold in your account. Mm -hmm. All they need is an email from you. Um, and I can load that with Bitcoin or Ethereum, or I can go down to the local 7-Eleven and deposit Filipino pesos into mm -hmm. my digital account. And I can use that to pay for all sorts of local services, like paying an electricity bill. I use it mainly to buy more mobile data for my phone, which is great because otherwise I'd have to literally go into the shop to do it, which is a massive pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic app. It makes my life so much easier in the Philippines. And one of the few things that I've seen where they're really doing a good job of hiding all the blockchain tech under the hood and just making a great service that works. That's good because we need more of those. Um, well, it was just acquired for like 78 million. It's only four years old. So is crypto big in the Philippines because they have such things? Well, there's an amazing emerging blockchain scene there and they're looking at all sorts of things from payments to identity to ag tech. Um, that's a big one. Um, and supply chain as well. But the reason is, um, I mean, mainly for payments. So personally, I think that's where the biggest opportunity lies. But um, I mean, to give you some stats on what the Philippines looks like compared to somewhere like Australia, there's more than 105 million people. Only 31% of them are banked, but nearly 60% of people have a smartphone. And currently only around 4% of transactions across the whole nation happen online. There's massive problems with identity. A lot of people don't have the identity docs that they need. Um, and that prevents them from being able to set up a bank account or access welfare or anything that they need, all the stuff that we take for granted. So things like coins.ph, being able to offer someone a digital wallet and means to transact online without having to do the usual KYC that you would to set up an account with a bank is game changing. Um, and I think if we continue to look at places like that and also the adult industry where people have real legitimate pain points about being able to access the type of services, the type of services that the rest of us take for granted, um, that's where we're going to start to see real adoption. When launching your product, use a brand new technology like blockchain, what was your big, what has been your biggest lesson so far? I love this question because, um, I think, I think the hardest thing in introducing a new technology is change. Um, people don't like change. They don't want to do things differently. They would far prefer to continue doing something that annoys the absolute crap out of them rather than stop and learn something new which could change their life. Um, and
and that's you've just got to accept that because that is the way it is. Uh, one of my favourite entrepreneurs is Thomas Edison. Um, people think that he, he um, invented the electric light bulb, but he didn't. He was the first to commercialise it, and the way that he did it was to deliver electricity to people for the first time in the same way that they were already receiving gas. So rather than trying to change people's behaviour and tell them, hey, we've got this amazing new technology, <clears throat> you should go and change everything that you're already doing in order to adopt it, he knew that that wouldn't work because people didn't know what this thing was. There were other people also trying to put out um, bad PR around it to make people quite scared of it. Um, they just weren't going to go out of their way. Like, why? Why would you bother going out of your way to try something that you've never even heard of and you don't understand? Um, and I think there's a lot of lessons in there around crypto. I mean, at the moment, a lot of people feel quite intimidated about it. There's a lot of stuff to learn. And they've heard that there's benefits and advantages, but in order to get on board, they just have to change so much about what they already do. So I think the more that we can make it simpler, um, make it more like what people already understand and recognize, make them feel more confident in using it, less scared, um, I think that would go a long way. Like coins.ph, they've, they've done a great job of doing that. So, um, so we yeah. need a few killer apps yeah. to help people just to use it without having to know. I, I usually say this, it's like, it's like driving a car. Everybody knows how to drive, nobody knows how the motor works, and we don't have to. Yeah, so. exactly. Or like, you know, if I want to set up an e-commerce business, I don't have to understand how the internet works. <laughs> exactly. So there's plenty of people, I mean, blockchain's still at such an early stage, and there's people competing in a marketplace of ideas for what's going to be the best platform, the best protocol. Um, Intimate.io isn't really positioned in that space. We, we want to be on the network layer and actually helping people use these amazing, fundamentally world-changing technologies as they're produced. How do we tailor it to our market so that they don't really have to understand the technology from any kind of um, viewpoint. They should just be able to pick it up, use it, love it, tell their friends, move on. <laughs> That's it. Simple and easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'd like to be able to see it move to that, that point. I think we're, we're getting there. Give it another decade or so. I mean, it's only been 10 years. That's, yeah, that's right. It's actually crazy when you think about it. Like, uh, I was just telling someone the other day, you know, gee, I've I've only been in Bitcoin for like about 25% of the time. And then I thought, it's actually really long, like compared to how long other technologies have been around. So yeah, we've got a long way to go, but yeah, we've also got time. Thank goodness. Um, if we don't destroy the planet first, but that's a conversation for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what resources do you use to keep up to date? Is there any good places that people that starting to learn should go yeah well, I was just saying this it's so funny like I don't I was thinking off the top of my head I don't know what resources I use but Twitter is a massive one um, I find uh, influencers and people that I admire and I like to follow them um, and I love to just read their opinions and ideas and and also sometimes if I'm feeling brave enough you know get involved with their tweet storms as well um, but I guess taking that a step further, my best resource over my entire journey has been real people. Um, having the confidence to reach out and have a conversation with someone, ask a question. Obviously, I would try to um, educate myself about that person's area of work before trying to get in touch with them. So mm -hmm. I really understand 
um, what they're about and maybe craft some good questions, which sounds like a lot of prep, but if you're going to take someone's time, then you should absolutely respect it and make it um, a mutually beneficial time together. Um, but I've been spoiled because I've, I've had some phenomenal people lend me their time throughout my journey. Um, Rob Allen in Australia was the first person who ever gave me the time of day and um, he would let me buy him lunch. Um, so we'd go and sit and I'd ask him like really dumb questions. <laughs> Looking back on it now, I met him actually as a Bitcoin professional speaker. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, but he was wonderful and just had the patience um, to sit with me. And I think when I was talking about um, it, it's got to be mutually beneficial. I think it means a lot to him now and he sees that I really have um, taken all the knowledge that he's given me and moved forward in the space. But after that, I mean, people like, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Vinay Gupta. Yes, I've heard of him. I haven't met him. He's incredible, um, a real expert um, in identity and was there at the creation of Ethereum. Um, he's really given me a lot of ideas around uh, identity concepts, um, but his mind works on another level. So, you know, chatting with him over wine is a bit of a treat. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, lots of other people. Also, I've Amber Day, who was the former... Um, blockchain lead at JP Morgan mm -hmm. in America. Um, she is uh, a real privacy expert, so I've spent quite a bit of time talking with her and asking questions. But yeah, I mean, whenever I come across someone that I really admire, I have to say conversations with them have been some of the most incredible resources I've ever been able to tap into. So reaching out and making the time to research first. Yeah. There's nothing worse like when someone emails you and says, hey, you know, can I buy you a coffee and just pick your brain? Like, I mean, some of the people that I just mentioned then, I mean, they consult for their time, like, for God knows how much. I mean, like, no, you can't have my time and pick my brain for a coffee. Um, having that respect is so, so important. If you actually want to get something out of someone else, you should always be thinking, well, what, what's this person going to get out of it? How can I give back to them? Um, so I've done that along the way, and I think I've been lucky to make some good friends out of it. I think you're doing well enough. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> hey. You are. Uh, okay, so final words of advice for people that are exploring blockchain now, just starting. Yes, okay. You don't need to be a dev. Um, like, I think most people think I have to learn a blockchain language, you have to be a developer in order to get into this space. I think right now blockchain needs people who are not from blockchain backgrounds and who are not computer scientists. Like we need like UX designers. Um, I think more than anything. Yeah, communication specialists, people who can tell a story, tell a narrative, educators, people who can actually help people learn and be confident and do it in a non-technical way. It doesn't have to be so technical. Um, I think anyone from outside the space who has an interest, if they ever think, oh, I don't know enough yet, so I can't get into the space until I know everything, no, get involved. Like, go to events, reach out to people, you know, start following them on Twitter, read white papers, just do as much as you can, but along the way, find out where you can actually contribute. Get involved with a project, volunteer your time. Um, I think that's the best way to get involved. And the more and more people we have that aren't from specific blockchain backgrounds, the faster we're actually going to achieve mass scale adoption because we're going to be focusing on, well, you're new to the space. What questions do you have? What are you thinking? That's actually the most relevant. Plus, whenever there's a new person that 
falls down the rabbit hole, that means that a lot of people they are in their own personal networks are going to start hearing about it. Yeah. As well because it's contagious. It's such a cool technology. You know, it's internet money. So you want to talk to your parents, to your cousins, to your immediate friends and, and everybody about it. So yeah, that's good. And I'm not allowed to, you know, talk about people buying um, coins or anything. But you know, obviously, you know, full disclosure, I, I own coins of my own. But the amount of people that I talked to who bought at the height of the market, you know, back in what was it, January 2018, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And now everyone's like, no, oh, it's a scam, Bitcoin shit. Get involved now. <laughs> like, this is the best time to get involved. It's like, on sale. Yeah. It's like what? Uh, it is so cheap. I'm but sure that people that bought shares just before a bubble popped felt the same way about whatever they bought as well. It's just human nature. Absolutely. You get burned, you, you, you feel it. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I thoroughly believe that um, the crypto market's only just getting started and soon we'll go on another bull run and then everyone will be saying, oh, I didn't get involved when I had the chance. It's like, get involved now while everyone's naysaying it. Um, it's the best time to get involved because you can kind of learn a bit. You meet from, you learn from the people who are actually committed to the space, not just the people who have come in for a bit of the hot air. Um, and then, yeah, see wherever the future can take you. Yeah, don't get discouraged. Remember when you were a baby and you had to try many times before you learned to walk. Yep, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, we all have that in our genes. Yep, we. I think that's a great analogy for it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wish you a safe trip back to the Philippines. Yeah, thank you. I'm flying out tomorrow, but I'll be, um, now that we're actually stationed in Asia, I'll be back to Australia a lot more, which is great. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we should do this again when my mind is a bit fresher and I make a bit more sense. You make perfect (laughs) sense. (laughs) Thanks, Leah. Thank you. And that was Leah Calum Butler. You can get in touch with Leah on Twitter at Leah underscore CB at L-E-A-H underscore CB. I'll be adding the links to her Twitter profile and LinkedIn on the show notes. If you have any suggestions or questions for me, I'm at Abelotti at A-B-E-L-O-T-T-I on Twitter and Adriana Bellotti on LinkedIn. Please remember to share this episode if you enjoyed it, and I'll see you at the next block. Bye!